Please make your acquaintance this morning with this handsome, if not geeky, young man from South Wales, United Kingdom. This is a photo of Joshua Wardle. Josh, as he is known, grew up on a farm. He escaped the Welsh countryside, however, to study at the University of London and later moved to the United States where he earned his graduate degree at the University of Oregon. His first job out of school was in California. He went to work for Reddit, an online networking site. He jumped over to Pinterest for a while, but online he returned back to Reddit where he began building experimental word games. And one of those games was a simple daily word puzzle that he invented during the pandemic for he and his partner and family to pass the time. And playing off of his name, Josh Wardle entitled it Wordle. It has taken over the internet. I'll not get into the specifics, but you get six chances, Candy Miller, to guess a five-letter word. That's it. No ads, no sharing of personal information, no logging in. Six tries at a five-letter word. Full disclosure. I started playing late last year before it was the big sensation that it is now with my morning coffee, just as Wordle was becoming a viral sensation, and I want you to know today that I have never lost. Yet, it's coming. And Josh Josh Wordle hasn't lost either. Just three weeks ago, he sold Wordle to the New York Times for, quote, an undisclosed seven-figure sum. They promise they will keep it free in the future, but we'll see. Because they also promise to keep player statistics in place, but mine were reset when it moved over to their website. Pride goeth before fall. They messed up my street just because they wanted to get in on the game. They have a history of such things. Exhibit B, please make your acquaintance with this dashing, if not geeky, older man from Liverpool, England, United Kingdom. This is a photo of Arthur Wynne, just about 100 years ago. He too grew up in the country. He escaped to London where he would study and then immigrated himself to the United States. He set out to become a journalist, but got distracted along the way when he began building experimental word games. How history repeats itself. He designed a boxed word game with numbers, blackout spots, and clues to fill in the boxes with words running up and down as well as side to side. He called it Word Cross. But the illustrator for the New York World, where Wynn worked at the time, botched the title and called it Crossword instead. And Arthur Wynn became the Josh Wardle of his day. And what did the New York Times do? Oh, they criticized the puzzle at first, from their crosstown rival, calling it, quote, a primitive sort of mental exercise. But Simon & Schuster began to publish whole books of puzzles, followed by others, until on this very weekend in 1942, the New York Times acquired the rights to the world's daily crossword puzzle, and with Will Shorts as the Times crossword editor for the last 30 years, the New York Times has set the universal standard for the crossword puzzle. Wordle, or something like it, may eventually eclipse the popularity of the crossword puzzle, but the New York Times will not care because they own the rights to all of it.
I hope Wordle can hang around. And here's why. It's very simple. I am better at it than I am at a crossword puzzle. It's the obscure and weird clues that get me. Like this one. Five letter word and the clue is it will bring the kid out in you. Labor is the answer. You see? All my useless knowledge is locked in the past. History. Things like that. I don't like all these little clues that make no sense. And I have absolutely no understanding of pop culture today. So I don't get these puzzles. I don't know what some Kardashian is doing. Or who was on the last Bachelor episode. How am I going to solve these puzzles today if you don't know this kind of information? So what happens is I have all these empty spaces staring back at me, mocking me. And it looks and reeks of failure. Wordle is clean and clear and tidy and simple. A crossword puzzle is exactly that. It's a puzzle. It's a scribbled out, sloppy, shambolic mess. And why is it a mess? Because I always make the mistake of starting with a pen. That's a big mistake. We all like things clean and tidy, don't we? I mean, your children probably don't, but most of us do as we get older. We don't like to be left with unanswered questions. With blank, cavernous spaces staring back at us. We hate it when there is more uncertainty than confidence, more doubt than fact, more chaos than order. We hate it when we have to put the pen to paper, knowing we have it all figured out, only to discover that what we thought we were sure about what we thought would fit in those empty spaces ends up not fitting at all. Maybe it used to. But the further we have moved along as the clues and the hints pile up and all our disjointed scribblings scribblings fill the margin, we sure wish we had used pencil instead. Maybe then, there wouldn't be such a mess. Well, I'm going to invite you to get into a mess over the next few weeks. I want you to take out your pencil. Even if you have been writing in pen for years. Even if you have been using a big big red sharpie. Put it down. Take out the puzzle sheet again. An empty one. And start over with lead and eraser. So that you can make adjustments as you go. Because we all know And if you don't know it yet, you will learn it soon enough in life that as you go, adjustments must be made. But that doesn't mean you have failed. It doesn't mean it's time to give it up and throw it all away. Just erase, recalculate, go back to the drawing board, look for different answers to the puzzle you're trying to solve. And the puzzle I want you to take on in the days ahead is the original crossword puzzle which is the cross itself. What was this man, Jesus of Nazareth, doing on an instrument of wood all those centuries ago? How did He end up there? Why was He there? 
What was he hoping to accomplish? What did people think of his death back then? What do we think of it now? How, after some 2,000 years, does the cross still make any difference for those of us living today? How is it that the cross persists? How does it remain the central meaning of our faith? What does the cross say about our understanding of God, our understanding of eternity, our understanding of our own selves, and our understanding of our relationship with the world? These are not easy questions. Tough hints. But for us, they are necessary for we profess faith in this Jesus. We say the cross is the most important thing about our beliefs. We revere the cross as the primary symbol of our faith. We hold it in our hearts. The earliest creed says Christ died on the cross for our sins. So seeing just a glimmer of what these clues and hints might point us to is important. And it's just as important for those of us who have been working at this puzzle most of our lives to revisit some of the answers that we thought we were so sure of. To see if they all still fit. To see if our lives, our experiences, and our understandings of the cross need revision. Do we leave these understandings in ink? Or more likely, do we begin again with a pencil and an eraser knowing that our understanding and images change over time? We begin with the first clue today, and it is 1 John 4. Only by beginning here can we fill out the major boxes that allow this puzzle of the cross to make any sense whatsoever. We're never going to solve the mystery of what happened at Golgotha, at Calvary, what Jesus did. There's too much depth to it. But there is... So much meaning there. Meaning that transfers to our life. And the meaning begins with John's understanding of what Jesus did. Whatever it was that Jesus was up to, quote, 1 John 4.10, it was a sacrifice to take away our sins. Something that we're going to spend these weeks unpacking But whatever that sacrifice is and whatever it means to take away our sins, it is rooted in and it is motivated by the love of God. This is the first box that must be filled. The first question that must be answered. For all of our conclusions will be skewed. They will all be misconstrued. They will be downright abusive and destructive if we don't begin with the love of God as the motivating force of what happened on that Good Friday all those years ago. Verse 9, God showed his, how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son. Verse 10, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Verse 11, since God loved us this much, we ought to love each other. Verse 16, God is love, and all who live in love live in God. Verse 18, such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. Verse 19, we love each other because God first loved us. What's he talking about here? 
What word gets all the repetition over and over again? It is the love of God that motivates this sacrifice on the cross. So whatever was going on, on that hill outside of Jerusalem that day, all those years ago, it wasn't God torturing His Son. Because love cannot do that. It wasn't God committing an act of colossal child abuse. Because love cannot do that. It wasn't God acting as a cruel and sadistic executioner. It wasn't God's attempt at redemptive violence. These are a few of the answers that have been pinned into our puzzle of the cross over the years, but they cannot even be remotely correct. Because if God is indeed love, and love is the energizing force that brought Jesus to the place of sacrifice on a cross, then love demands better answers than some of the answers we have settled for. Love demands an understanding of the cross that sets God free from this horrible false image. Free from being seen as an angry, savage monster whose bloodthirst must be quenched or the universe will perish and we will with it. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That has the ring of truth about it. Because if we believe that God is angry, that God is vengeful, that God is a ruthless deity who demands blood and doesn't much care whose blood it is, that God is a suspicious patrolman looking for someone to stick it to, if we believe that God is terrifying, if we are afraid of God, we will never worship God. We will never love God. We will never trust God. Because how can you trust someone who in the back of your mind you're thinking they are out to get me? We cannot love someone with that view. But here is the good news. The inverse. And this is where this puzzle is first untangled. God is not out to get you. God is on your side. God loves us perfectly. And that kind of love expels all fear. When you know you are eternally and wonderfully loved, there is nothing else to be afraid of. Love settles us in a way that nothing else can. We're not afraid of losing a relationship. We're not afraid of what might happen in the future. We're not burdened down by the past. When, we, when you know love, you got all you need to live a confident life. And that's what John is saying here. This kind of well-developed, perfect love that God has for us, it should give us confidence. It should give us hope. It should banish our fears and our suspicions. To be afraid of living 
to be afraid of dying. To be afraid that God is going to punish or harm you. To be afraid that God's intent for you is some lurking disaster. Afraid that God wants to scrub you out. That's bad theology. That's a bad belief system. And I'll say this as clearly as I can today. It is a primitive, undeveloped, unchristian belief that is far more superstitious than it is reality. It is far more pagan than it is orthodox. It is far more the usual way of viewing the gods rather than the revolutionary way given to us by Jesus. And I can illustrate it with a picture. April Anderson and I exchanged this picture a few weeks ago. April was reminding me that it had been over 10 years since this event. We are in El Salvador in this picture. And this is part of our mission team back in 2010-2011. We are sitting atop the Mayan ruins at a place called Tazamal. And the ruins are ancient. Those existing ruins that we are sitting on date back to the time of Christ. And beneath those there is evidence of ruins that are even a thousand years older than that. Tazamal is the most important and best preserved Mayan ruins in El Salvador. And we toured the museum there, and I don't know if you remember it, but we had the most energetic tour guide I have ever met in my life, and I didn't understand a word that he said, but he was really passionate. He showed us the most valuable artifact ever found on that site. And it's a great, giant stone axe. And the head of the axe is shaped like a bird's head. And it's red in color. Massive, heavy. Any guesses on what they use that thing for? To decapitate the victims that were offered on this pleasant tourist site where we are all sitting. The entire religious system at Tazamal, as it is the focus of so many ancient temples of all types, was bloodshed for the sake of appeasing the gods. Oh, there's a drought. We haven't had rain. Round up some virgins. Let's get this thing started. It's too much rain. Now it's flooding. Round up some more. Knock their heads off. Pour the blood out on the, on the altar. There's a plague. There's a disease that's eating through our villages. What should we do? More human sacrifice. When anything ever went wrong, the idea was the gods are angry and somebody's got to bleed. And that is a primal idea in all of humanity across the entire world. You go back to all ancient cultures and you find this. It is all violent, it is all bloody, and it is all an act of appeasement. But you do not find that in the Gospel. Well, wait a minute, Ronnie. Jesus is up there bleeding on a cross. That looks like sacrifice to me. It is a sacrifice. But it's turned on its head, as we will see in these weeks to come. So if our faith remains in this mindset that God has to have blood now, today, it is a faith that has failed to move. It is a faith that has failed to mature. 
It is a faith that remains at Tazamel, which means the place of the victim's burning. Is that where our faith is? We cannot ignore the central tenet of God's motivating love. Not God's disturbed and disturbing sense of being offended by our sins. To believe in the God revealed to us by Jesus of Nazareth is to believe in a God of love. It is to believe that Jesus didn't come to save us from God. Jesus came to show us what God is really like. And the God that we see in this Jesus is a God who loves you no matter who you are and loves you before you will become what you ought to be because guess what? You're never going to become what you ought to be. And God loves you anyway. And if God truly is love, if God ceases loving us, then God ceases to be God Himself. I say things like this a lot. This is one of the most repeated subjects that I've spoken on over the years, the radical love of God. And after speaking about it one Sunday, right here, a woman came up to me after service with an excellent question. She said, do you really believe that? Do you really believe in the kind of God you talked about today? And I said, when I look at Jesus, this is the only God that I can see. I've got blinders. I've got biases, just like all of us do. I look at the world with a little, my own filtered set of lenses, just like all of us do. But when I spend time with Jesus of Nazareth, this is the conclusion that I come to. And she said, I really want to believe that too. But I'm afraid. And I said to her, what exactly are you afraid of? And she said, and this gets right to it, she said, I am afraid that what you said is too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, I just couldn't live with the disappointment. And I never saw her again. And I hope somewhere today, wherever she is, that she has captured some insight into how God loves her. And when it sounds too good to be true, we've just begun to scratch the surface of how good it is. Now with this little series of talks, explain the cross, you're going to get done with your crossword puzzle about the cross and you have all the answers like Wordle. No. No. And it's not a game. We'll get through this little series and you'll have more questions than answers, maybe. Is this whole series of talks going to help you love God as you should? Probably not. But it really doesn't matter. And this is what I'm saying. What matters more? That you love God as you should or knowing that God loves you right where you are? That is a revolutionary change 
of perspective. And that's what can set us free to live true lives of liberating grace and to live with no fear.